Good morning, I'm Pastor Ryan, and we're in the middle of our Lent series discussing release. Often my sermons are ways that God has been challenging me, and I want to invite you into my journey this morning. I want to start with a short family story to introduce our topic. Uh, my Japanese-American grandmother recently turned 101 years old a couple weeks ago, and I'm so grateful for her. I want to share with you one of her go-to stories, one of her top stories about me as a child. But first, of course, here's a cute picture of me when I was about two years old. The story that she tells uh, probably took place when I was maybe four or five, and uh, my grandmother would often take care of me, and we would be at my uncle's company. What happened is uh, I had found a tiny matchbook and I had never seen one before as a child, so I didn't know what it was. And so I just started playing with it and messing with it. And somehow I got it to light and I burned my finger. So in an attempt to cover up my actions, I remember throwing this match underneath this giant large metal cabinet. And then I took uh, some Play-Doh and covered up my finger where the burn was. So a couple of minutes passed by and my grandmother notices a burning spell coming under, from underneath the cabinet and she's able to take some wet paper towel or some wet towels and she stuffs them underneath. She throws some water underneath the cabinet and uh, the smoke stops and thankfully it didn't lead to a larger fire. I tell you this story because uh, shame and guilt were integral as a part of my life growing up as a multiracial, multi-ethnic person. And I grew up largely immersed in my Japanese American culture. I clearly knew that what I'd just done was wrong and I was guilty, but that guilt played into my shame. That if I let someone see my bad actions, that I would be deemed as bad. So what I did was I hid and I tried to cover up my, my actions and separated myself from my grandma and anyone else who should have been watching me. And, and probably potentially could have created a larger problem. This morning, I want to talk about an intersecting point of a collective experience of shame as a response to violence and racism against Asians, and what we're collectively invited to release as a community and as individuals. The Bible is written in the context of a largely collectivistic society and culture. Topics of honor and shame are interwoven into the very fabric of the Bible narrative. One story that highlights how honor and shame function in the background of interactions in the story of Jesus and the woman at the well in John 4. Jesus is traveling and he sits by a well in the middle of the day and a woman comes by to draw water. And commonly when Jesus interacts with someone, the other person is the one who initiates the conversation in the interaction. He's usually approached, he's sought after, and rarely does Jesus ever initiate a conversation with someone. But that's what we see here in this passage, starting in verse 7. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Their immediate interaction between each other is built on honor and shame. The fact that this woman is only identified by some of her identity markers as a woman and as a Sumerian already differentiate her from Jesus' identity as being named male and a Jew. From the beginning, these two are coming from different places. 
The conversation continues in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well and his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But, to, but to those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will be in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. In their continued conversation, the woman questions Jesus' status. Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? And then it begins to become clear that they're talking about something much more than the function of water for hydration, but symbolically. And the woman wants to hide her shame. She doesn't want to be in public having to come to the well in the middle of the day. And then we get to the part of the conversation that is so widely referenced. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Verses 16 to 18, Jesus calls out the woman's marital circumstances, unveiling shame that's been self-imposed on her or that the community has placed on her or both. This, revealing, this is revealing her the reasoning for her timing at the well in the middle of the day, avoiding the ridicule of her community. What we don't know is whether her circumstances are a result of her doing or the doing of her past relationships. And way too often, the woman is blamed for her circumstances. Shame isolated and silenced her. There have been a couple of ways I've been processing shame during the pandemic, and I want to share two with you all this morning. About uh, six months ago, my dad came across my mom's LCSW master's paper. It was uh, hand typed. Uh, and it was an emotional process for me to read something that my mom had written that I had never seen before. I felt like I, would, uh, I was able to hear her voice again for the first time in years. Uh, her paper was written in the early 1970s and it discusses how shame and the model minority myth had become a barrier to Japanese and Japanese Americans seeking professional mental health. One of the cultural hurdles she identifies is found in the nuance of language. She references a couple of words in Japanese, but one that is familiar to, we, to me is the word gaman. Gaman has this connotation to keep going, to power through. Even if you're tired, you can dig deep and find strength to accomplish or overcome. By powering through until you reach your goal, you're able to avoid shame of making a mistake or a failure, which could pop possibly separate your authentic self from your loved ones in your community. What Gaman does is it plays right into the model minority myth. As a youth pastor, fo folks often ask me how the youth are doing in the, in, during this time. My response in general has been that they're hanging in there, but it's difficult. But why is it difficult? Often our high schoolers and sometimes for our younger ones, 
they're facing the expectations of assignments and tests that hasn't changed, and in some cases, it's increased. Our youth have not only had to adjust to a worldwide pandemic and online learning, but they've been met with the same expectations to succeed in the midst. And these expectations weigh heavily on our youth's well-being. And I think uh, this is not something that is uh, alone for our youth. While I've heard of these expectations for them, I've also heard that from some of you that we're, you're facing the same expectations of your work and are in uh, experiencing similar sentiments. What's happened is we've either forgotten or ignored the weight of our circumstances and have only made it harder on ourselves. I would guess that some of you have these expectations that we subscribe ourselves to and have been driven by the temptation to save face and have continued to play into the model minority myth and the perceived need to avoid shame in our workplace. Second, I've been enraged by the rise of crimes towards APIs. I know we released anger last week, but still. I think we're in this collective shame experience in which we've been forced and manipulated to function out of the model minority myth, which has falsely allured us with a closer proximity to whiteness. When reality, reality it's continued to harm and furthered racism against other racial minorities, creating separation between two communities or between other communities. And within the model minority myth, shame in this system is telling us that this could have all been avoided if we just would have achieved or accomplished something more. In this case, releasing shame that silences us and disconnects us. Picking back up to where we left off with Jesus and the woman. The woman said, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Here we get to the purpose of their conversation. While Jews and Samaritans think that they have it figured out, they both do and they both don't. But it is only through something new, through the embodied Christ, do two groups separated by racism can discover a new way of living. We find as the story continues that the woman releases her shame that had separated her from her community. She's no longer silent in the midst of her circumstances. And the shame that she's experiencing will no longer distance her from others. As I mentioned earlier, the interactions of the Bible are so intertwined with honor and shame, and I briefly want to show the same movement in another story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount the demon-possessed man who is referred to as Jesus and that Jesus casts out into the pigs. The movement of the story and its structure are similar to the one that we just read. 
It starts with the man displaced from his home and, a fa and family, shame because of the person that he had become, in verse 27, only to have this experience with Jesus change him and to be returned back into the community, in verse 39. We see, both, we see in both these stories that shame isolates and silence, but we're invited into a process of releasing our shame with God and our community, and we are free to no longer live out expectations of achievement or success, and we are freed from our silence, and we are drawn deeper into a new community of wholeness.